Chapter 5 Missional Parenting by Rich Lusk Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29, 5-7 The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18, 17-19 Jeremiah 29, 4-7 Raising Children in Exile God has called parents into a great and glorious mission. Indeed, Christian parenting is a vital part of the Church's overarching mission of bringing blessing to the nations. See Genesis 12, 1-3 and Matthew 28, 16-20. What is missional parenting? Jeremiah 29 helps explain. The book of Jeremiah is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to the Jewish exiles who have been carted off to Babylon. In light of the sustained unfaithfulness of the nation, God has finally brought judgment against them. They are now dwelling among pagan peoples in a pagan city. They need to know, what do we do here now that we are dwelling among pagans? Jeremiah writes a letter to them, giving counsel and instruction, recorded for us in Jeremiah 29, 4-32. This passage is extremely appropriate for God's people today, because the church in our culture has entered into something of an exilic situation. If you are familiar with the history of Western civilization, you know that, whatever its flaws, it was largely built on the backs of Bible-believing and Christ-trusting people. Now, all that seems to be crumbling. A once-strong Christian consensus has evaporated all around us. We can despair over that, but when the dust clears, we have to ask, What do we do now? Jeremiah's letter teaches us how to live as pilgrims in a strange land. Geographically, we have not moved or been displaced, but culturally, we have certainly entered a period of exile for the church. What does Jeremiah say to the exiles dwelling in Babylon? He tells them to settle down, build houses, plant gardens, and have children. He tells them to seek after and pray for the peace, shalom, of the city. Why would Jeremiah need to command them to have children in exile? How would having children play into their peace-seeking mission? Some of them may have thought that it would be better not to have kids while living in Babylon. False prophets had told them exile would never happen, or if it did, it wouldn't last long. Jeremiah knows it will last more than a generation and has told them so. He wanted them to think about the exile in multi-generational terms. We must do the same. Our culture in general, and cities in particular, may not appear like hospitable places for raising children. But part of seeking the shalom of Babylon is begetting sons and daughters, 
Why is this? Because one of the ways we seek to bless the city is through godly, faithful family life. There is a real temptation for us to be escapists and to sequester ourselves into little Christian enclaves. But Jeremiah calls us to engage the city, including how we raise our children. But how do we raise up a godly generation in exile, in a culture with radically different values than our own? The Israelites would have asked that question. We need to ask it as well. In fact, we might wish that Jeremiah had sent along more detailed instructions about raising kids in Babylon. If he had said, Hey, parents, this is how much Babylonian TV your kids can watch each week. This is a list of approved Babylonian radio stations. Here's what you should do about the Babylonian city schools. It would have been very helpful. Jeremiah did not do that, of course. But that doesn't mean that we are left in the dark. Rather, it means we have to fill in Jeremiah's command using wisdom drawn from the rest of Scripture. Interestingly, Paul is doing the same thing in Ephesians 6.4 when he gives instructions to parents seeking to raise up a godly generation in the midst of another pagan city, the city of Ephesus. Paul commands, Fathers, raise up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. The word for training in Greek is paideia. It is an all-encompassing term which essentially means our children are to be socialized into the life and culture of the kingdom of God. It's as though Paul says to them, You may be citizens of the Roman Empire, but raise your children to live as citizens of God's kingdom. You must teach them what it means to live as Christians in a non-Christian environment. When we get into the specifics of raising children in an ungodly milieu, there is no way we can take up a one-size-fits-all approach that will answer every question for every family. But what I want to do here is sketch out an overarching vision from which we can derive practical guidelines. Most importantly, we want to answer the question, how does raising children fit into the mission Jeremiah gives to the church of seeking the peace of the city? Genesis 18, 16-19 Raising Children to Bless the World Modern churches spend a lot of time trying to develop mission statements. Abraham got his mission statement directly from God, Genesis 12, 1-3. Abraham's mission would be to bring the blessing of God to all the nations of the world. He was chosen not just for his own benefit, but to be an agent of blessing to others. Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Now, in Genesis 18, God reiterates that purpose but explains further how Abraham's family will be instrumental in the fulfillment of his mission. What was the blessing God bestowed on Abraham? According to the book of Galatians, it was the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the blessing is the gospel. It is God's grace to us and our children. However, it is all too easy for us to focus on the first part of the Abrahamic covenant, God blessing us, and ignoring the second part, our call to bless others. It is easy for us to ignore the role of descendants in our calling to be a blessing to others. If God has blessed our families with salvation, He wants us to be instruments of blessing others with salvation as well. How will God's purpose of blessing the nations through Abraham come to pass? A careful look at the grammar of Genesis 18-19 yields an answer and helps us put the task of parenting in its proper place. 
There are three clauses in this verse that are joined together by two in order that statements. These statements unfold a logical progression. Abraham is chosen in order that he might command his family to walk in the way of the Lord, in order that the promises made to him that all the families of the earth will be blessed will come to fulfillment. He is chosen to teach his family so that through his family all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Note that family life is not an end in itself. The family serves the larger mission of God's kingdom. Parenting is a second-order task, subordinate to the fulfillment of Abraham's great commission of blessing the nations. To make this more explicit, consider the structure of Genesis 19 more carefully. 1. Abraham is chosen in order that 2. He may train his children in justice and righteousness in order that 3. The promise of global blessing may be fulfilled. The problem is that many Christian parents get stuck in the middle term, too, in the logical flow. We raise moral children as an end in itself, but we do not reach the ultimate missional goal of raising children who can reach the world with the blessing of the gospel. Parents and pastors alike must simply get this. We should not aim at familiocentric churches, but at ecclesiocentric families. Raising children rightly is simply a stepping stone. It's penultimate. The real goal is to plug our children into the mission of the church. Of course, missional families will grow and thrive only when they are joined together in missional churches. It's all too easy for churches to become ingrown and inward-facing, only serving the needs of their niche membership. It has been rightly said, the church exists for the sake of the world. So what are we doing to make our churches places where sinners can find Jesus? where less mature Christians can find proper instruction and nourishment. If our church life and culture are set up only to accommodate people who have attained a high level of Christian maturity, we're actually failing. True maturity is found in sacrificial mission. A couple of rather controversial examples may help prove the point. Should a church have a staffed nursery during the worship service? A pragmatic argument could be made in favor of a nursery, even for mature Christians who are working hard at training their children to stay in the whole worship service. Inevitably, there are times when moms have to take their little ones out. A nursery can actually maximize the number of people in the service by coordinating child care. Instead of five moms each individually taking their babies out, a nursery allows two moms or other volunteers to watch all five children. But more importantly, there are missional reasons for having a staff nursery. It is a function of congregational hospitality to the outsider. The reality is, most non-Christian families will not be able to keep small children with them in the whole service without too much of a struggle. Even most Christian parents today have simply not been given the resources or vision they need to train their children to stay in the service and learn to worship with the rest of the body. If our churches are not going to be only for those who have arrived, then we need to be willing to accommodate folks while we work to get them up to speed. This is not compromise. Rather, it's a form of congregational hospitality. The problem is especially acute with non-Christian families who visit our churches. If we want them to be able to explore the Christian faith with us, they have to hang around long enough to hear what we have to say and get to know us. 
But that simply cannot happen if we are not prepared to shoulder the burden of some of their childcare needs on Sundays. Having a nursery for the little ones is a way we can meet people where they are and then help them play catch-up. For the same reasons, we need Sunday school, or something very much like it. To be sure, I think a strong case can be made for age-segregated Sunday school classes as a common-sense way to supplement parental instruction that is already taking place. It is good and healthy for our children to learn from other members of the body of Christ beside their parents, though parents should be warned of the dangers of abdicating as well. But more to the point, there are missional reasons for having a Sunday school program. Sunday school was originally started in the 18th century as an outreach program to illiterate children, to teach them to read through teaching them the Bible. Some have used Sunday school's origins as a reason to discontinue it, but I see its origins as a strong incentive for keeping it around, or developing something similar to the traditional Sunday school program in its place. Sunday school is not just for the insider, but also for the outsider. It's not just for furthering discipleship, but for doing evangelism. Consider the following scenario. Someone in your church befriends a single mom with two boys, ages 9 and 11, and invites her to church. Her boys are in a below-average public school. They were baptized as babies, but have never been in church regularly. They have not had much instruction and are quite a handful. The mom is starting to really lose control and the window of opportunity to set the boys on a good life path is rapidly closing. What does the church have to offer her and her children? It would be great if we could press the pause button on the boys, get her up to speed, and then let her resume her work of parenting. But that can't happen. She's going to have to learn on the go how to handle her children. But in the meantime, they continue to grow up. So how can the church best help her? Certainly, family should have her family in their homes and develop strong relationships with her and her children. Men in the church should help provide a masculine presence in their lives. But the church can also speed up the process by providing direct instruction to her boys. One of the best things the church can offer her boys is consistent teaching in the form of a Sunday school program, or something like it. As the boys are taught truth, they also get to be around other kids who are already on track so they have mature peer group examples all around them. Sunday school is not the only solution to the scenario I've described, but it can be a vital piece of it. Unless our churches are only going to cater to intact, traditional families, to the exclusion of almost everyone else, we need to develop ways of ministering to people from broken backgrounds. Familiocentric churches do a good job keeping the healthy well, but they simply cannot minister to the sick very effectively. Missional churches and families aim to find ways to befriend sinners, where they are, not where they should have been. Only in this way can we be the blessing God promised through Abraham. Genesis 18, 16-19 A Missional Curriculum for Parents The family exists for the sake of the church, and the church exists for the sake of the world. So how can parents train their children to play their part in the global mission of the church? Unpacking Genesis 18.19 further, In what specifically is Abraham to train his children? He is to train them in the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice. God tells Abraham to teach his children, 
and then God gives him the curriculum. Keeping the way of the Lord, or walking in the way of the Lord, is a common Old Testament expression for the pattern of life that God calls his people to embody. To walk in the way of the Lord means walking in the way of the Lord and not in the way of some other god or idol. It means not walking according to your own light, but according to the light of God's word. Walking in the way of the Lord also means imitating God. It means observing how God acts, and then modeling your conduct, your lifestyle, and your relationships after His. Parents are to teach their children to live a godlike lifestyle. Another way to unpack what it means to walk in the way of the Lord is to look to God's law. To walk in the way of the Lord is to do the things that God has specifically commanded and instructed us to do in His Word, knowing that any other path we might try to follow is a dead end. The pathway marked out for us in the law of God is the one and only path that leads to life. Walking in the way of the Lord is a matter of keeping His commandments because His laws reflect His character and action. For example, Deuteronomy 10, 17-19. Thus, parents are to teach their children to adhere to God's word in all of life. The content of this missional curriculum is spelled out further with the words righteousness and justice. These are two closely related terms, though they have slightly different shades of meaning. Righteousness refers to something that is what it should be, something that fulfills its design or meets its standards or satisfies its purpose. It is a relational and covenantal term. A righteous person is the person who keeps his word and fulfills his obligations to others. He is what a human being should be in his community. He does right by others because he lives in his relationships according to God's design. He is covenantally faithful. In a fallen world, righteousness means not only doing what is right, but rightwising what is wrong. It means working to put the world to rights. Thus, relational righteousness ultimately means restoring broken people to health, safety, and prosperity. It means bringing people into the shalom God intended for the creation from the beginning. Justice is closely related to righteousness. Justice is the action of setting things right. It is righting wrongs. When things are out of order, justice puts them back in order. When things are out of place, justice puts them back in their place. When things are broken, justice fixes them. Biblical justice is not just confined to the law court. Justice is not only a judge's declaration, but the follow-through, the execution of the sentence. Moreover, while biblical justice is multifaceted, so that acting in justice varies according to one's role and circumstances, justice in the Bible always carries not only a punitive dimension, but a restorative dimension as well. This is why the justice in the Bible is so often closely related to mercy, peace, and compassion. See Zechariah 7, 9-10 and Job 29, 12-17. Whether it is caring for the poor or rescuing the oppressed or acting on behalf of those who cannot act for themselves, it is an act of mercy from one perspective. But from another perspective, it is an act of justice. Justice is giving others what God says we owe them, which, of course, is love above all else. It is crucial to understand that in the Old Testament, righteousness and justice are not concepts or doctrines we are to think about, 
but rather are things we do and practice in the world. And when we do righteousness and justice, the result is blessing and shalom. Thus, the mission of Genesis 12 and Jeremiah 29, of bringing blessing to the nations and shalom to the city, is fulfilled when God's people do righteousness and justice. What is God telling Abraham in Genesis 18:19? He is telling him to teach his children to obey and imitate God, to pursue righteousness and justice, and in this way bring about restoration, healing, blessing, and peace in the world. As N.T. Wright puts it, quote, To hope for a better future in this world, for the poor, the sick, the lonely and depressed, for the slaves and refugees, the hungry and homeless, for the abused and paranoid, the downtrodden and despairing, and in fact for the whole wide, wonderful and wounded world, is not something else, something extra, something tacked on to the gospel as an afterthought. End quote. The practice of righteousness and justice is integral to a gospel-shaped life. Where does the preaching of the gospel fit into this ministry of righteousness and justice? Obviously, preaching the gospel is indispensable to bringing blessing and peace to the city. Only the gospel can deal with the root of the world's fallenness and give hurting people victory over the last enemy of death. But word and deed ministry go together. They did in the life of Jesus, see Luke 24:19, and they continue to in the life of the church, see Romans 15:18 and 1 Peter 4:11. Jesus got a hearing from his contemporaries because of what he was doing. They saw him saving people from sickness and death, and so they listened when he talked about salvation and forgiveness. The church is now to embody the same pattern. We must not fall into a false dichotomy between evangelism and social action. Both are mandatory for the body of Christ because both are part of our historic mission of justice and righteousness. Missional Parenting We tend to think of mission and parenting as standing in sharp tension with one another. Mission has to do with reaching the world, interacting with and engaging unbelievers, Mission has to do with facing the challenges and temptations that come with engaging the culture. Mission is what we do out in the world. It is outward-facing. Parenting, on the other hand, has to do with nurturing and protecting children. It has to do with shielding children from the world's evil, at least until they are mature enough to deal with it. Parenting seems to be inward-facing. Thus, there seems to be a tension between the task of mission and the task of parenting. Churches seem to swing one way or the other. Some churches have a strong focus on missions, but usually end up neglecting their own children. Other churches focus so heavily on nurturing their own children that they ignore those on the outside. The church is just there to meet family needs and only grows with nine months' notice. It is more like a family club than a people sent on a global mission. Genesis 18.19 will not allow us to go to either end of the spectrum because it requires us to do both. Mission and covenant succession go together, and to have one without the other is always disastrous for the church. What good does it do if we reach the world but lose our children to the world in the process? What good does it do to reach the people out there if we lose the children in here? If we are losing our own children to the world, 
we are never going to fulfill our mission. At the same time, what good does it do to raise up kids who are moral, but who are so separated from the world that they cannot carry the mission of the church forward or engage the world around them? We are called to be different from the world for sure, but there are also ways in which we are called to be similar to the world around us. This is what the prophet Jeremiah is emphasizing when he speaks of living and participating in the city. Some Christians are too worldly, to be sure, but other Christians are not worldly enough in the right way. One of the earliest pieces of Christian apologetics preserved from the ancient church, the letter to Diognetus, is very helpful in this regard. The letter is famous for developing its doctrine of dual citizenship. We are citizens of God's kingdom, but we are also citizens of an earthly society. We have an earthly citizenship and a heavenly citizenship, and we must live out both faithfully. Certainly, our heavenly citizenship controls the way we live out our earthly citizenship. The heavenly citizenship obviously has a higher rank, but some Christians have so separated themselves from the world around them that they are really not earthly citizens any longer, at least in any functional way. They are really not participating in the life of the culture around them, making it impossible for them to truly seek the peace of their city. Yes, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that means we live out a distinctive lifestyle, but we are also citizens on earth. We are called to live out a form of life that shares all kinds of cultural space and all kinds of cultural traits with the people around us. This is crucial if we are to establish the points of contact necessary to move the mission forward. See 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. All that to say, there is a vital link between raising children and the mission of the church, and this means parenting must have a missional flavor. Parenting is not an end in itself. Parenting is an in-order-that kind of thing, as Genesis eighteen nineteen indicates. You don't just raise godly children so you'll have godly children. You raise godly children so they can carry forth the mission that God entrusted to Abraham in the beginning, a mission that God reiterated to the exiles through Jeremiah. True Christian parenting aims at producing children who are a blessing, who bring shalom. We seek to raise up a godly generation not for its own sake, but for the sake of the city and for the sake of the world. Parental nurture feeds and supports kingdom mission. This means there is something bigger at stake in your parenting than having a happy family life. Moreover, it means parenting is more complicated than just saying no to the things of the world. We must be missional parents, raising missional children. Again, faithful parenting isn't just a matter of building a hedge around the home to keep pop culture out. Sure. Parents need to protect and shelter their children in appropriate ways. We don't just throw our children into the world, for that would be like throwing them to the wolves. However, neither can we settle for raising them to live in a Christian ghetto or evangelical subculture. We raise them up so they can play their part and participate in this mission in the world. We raise them to be savvy about culture and winsome in how they present the gospel. If all you do is seek to protect your children, Your parental endeavors are terribly incomplete. Parents are not engaged in a rear-guard defensive action. Genesis 18.19 calls us to offensive, missionally aggressive parenting. 
Psalm 127 talks about our children as a quiver full of arrows. It does no good to sharpen and straighten those arrows if you're just going to leave them in the quiver. We have to string our bows and unleash our children into the world, firing them into the heart of enemy territory. Our children have to learn how to live in the world the same way a doctor has to learn to work around sick people without contracting illness. Our children have to be prepared to go into the world the same way a doctor has to go into the sick ward, for only then can they bring the healing power of the gospel to bear on the brokenness of the world. Too many of us are in danger of ending up with finely honed, sharpened, straightened arrows that never get drawn out of the quiver. Too many of us are in danger of raising knowledgeable doctors who never cure anyone because they're afraid to enter the hospital. Our children cannot bless the world if they never go out into the world. They cannot seek the peace of the city unless they engage the culture and people of the city. We are to train our children not just to avoid evil, but to conquer evil. We are to train children who know not just how to interpret the world, but how to transform it. Kids to the Rescue The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is odd because, while it comes into the context of the life of Abraham, it seems to work at cross-purposes with God's promises to Abraham. God has promised Abraham global blessing, but Genesis 18 and 19 are about judgment. Instead of sharing in the blessing of God, wrath falls from heaven on the cities of the plain. What initially attracts the Lord's attention to Sodom is not its wickedness, but the great outcry that rises up from the city. See Genesis 18:20-21. The word for outcry describes a cry for help, a cry from deliverance from oppression, cruelty, violence, and tyranny. It is the same word used later to describe the cry of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 22, the same word is used to describe a woman's cry for help when she's been raped. The word outcry reminds us that Sodom was a brutal place, full of both sexual and social perversity. See also Ezekiel 16, 48-49. But why can't Sodom be saved? Why can't Sodom be rescued at this point in time? The reason even Abraham's prayers cannot save the city is because Abraham does not yet have a family. God tells Abraham he is to raise children to do righteousness and justice. And he tells him that in the midst of going to investigate and then destroy unrighteous and unjust cities. How do these things fit together? Why does the Lord stop to speak to Abraham about his future family while going to judge the unjust cities? The answer is simple. Abraham's offspring will be the answer to Sodom's problem. God has chosen Abraham so that he can raise up children who will do justice and righteousness and in this way answer the outcry of Sodom-like cities in the future. When the Lord blesses him with a family, Abraham must raise up his children in the way of the Lord so they can answer the city's cry for help and bring justice and blessing to the Sodoms of the world. The justice and righteousness of Abraham's children will meet and overcome the injustice and unrighteousness of the city Conquering curse with blessing and violence with shalom. Abraham cannot rescue the city at this point in his history because he doesn't yet have a family. But in the future, the task of the sons of Abraham will be to serve as the righteous in the city who bring blessing and save the city from judgment. As members of the Abrahamic covenant, this is the job of Christian parents today. We are to raise up children who can save our cities 
who can rescue our modern-day Sodoms by bringing the blessing and shalom of the gospel to them. Abraham longed to see the city saved. We must have the same longing. However, Abraham lacked the necessary instrument, namely children. We do not. Our children must grow to be the restorer of streets to dwell in, Isaiah 58.12, bringing the dead streets of our cities to life through gospel messaging and gospel neighboring, through gospel proclamation and gospel embodiment. Kingdom Kids, Church Kids, Apostolic Kids Think about what Jesus said concerning covenant children in Matthew 19.14. Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. New King James Version While this passage is one of those texts that gets all tied up in debates over paedo-baptism and paedo-communion, we should not miss the missional implications. Jesus says the kingdom belongs to our children, and our children belong to the kingdom. Certainly, Jesus is teaching that the privileges and benefits of the kingdom belong to our children, but if they have been blessed with kingdom life, they must learn to be a blessing to others. If the kingdom belongs to them, the mission of the kingdom belongs to them as well. Kingdom membership is not just about privileges. It carries with it responsibilities. Our children are part of the family of Abraham, called to be shalom seekers for the world around them. Raising kingdom kids means a lot more than just raising kids who are good Christians and stay out of trouble. It means more than teaching kids to pray and stay chaste. It means that we, as parents, cannot allow our kids to settle for a privatized righteousness. We cannot settle for moral kids. We must raise missional kids, kids who learn to live with a sense of being sent into the world with a divine mandate. This means raising children as a form of missionary training. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells fathers to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, King James Version. This includes training them to look at the world through the lens of God's mission. Thus, parents must inculcate a heart of mission in their children. Paul also gives children the command to honor their parents, Ephesians 6, 1-3. Given that Paul has addressed his letter to the church in Ephesus, and now addresses the children as a subgroup within the church, it is safe to say that our children should be considered members of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What does it mean for the church to be apostolic? An apostle is one who is sent. Apostolic basically means missional. The two words are essentially interchangeable. Some folks don't like the word missional because it has become too much of a trendy buzzword. If that's the case, I suggest using the term apostolic instead. To be missional is to be apostolic and vice versa. We are sent on a mission. All Christians are apostles in a broad sense. Our children are sent on a mission as apostles as well. This mission, this sentness, has to flavor, contextualize, and shape everything that we do. We live as God's sent people no matter what we are doing at any given moment. We are bearers of the kingdom of God and representatives of God's righteousness and justice in everything that we do. We are called to bring shalom into the world as we obey God in all of life through the generations. So where do we begin? Parents, the best way to train your kids in shalom-making is to do it yourself. You have to be the kind of person you want your children to become. 
you have to model missional blessing in your own life. This is precisely what Abraham goes on to do in Genesis 18 when he intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham prays for the cities of the plain, seeking their rescue, blessing, and salvation. He knows the Lord is going to inspect them and will eventually judge them, but he does not just pull up a lawn chair to watch the fireworks show. He does not cheer on the wrath from heaven, unlike the prophet Jonah later in history when he wishes destruction on Nineveh. Instead, he seeks to protect and shield the cities through his prayers. Abraham acts like and prays like a missionary, setting an example for us and for our children. He is a missional man living out the mission, seeking the good of the place where God has put him. Do we teach our children to pray missionally, or do their prayers fixate on personal and familial needs? It's great to pray for grandma's health or a safe trip on family vacation, but our children need to learn how to use prayer as more than a means of seeking their personal and familial well-being. We must equip them to use prayer as a tool for seeking blessing and shalom for the broken world around them, including the least of these. Just as mission became a core part of Abraham's identity, so it must become a core part of our identity and our children's identity. Parents, it is your job to set before your children an example of justice and righteousness and to knead these things into the hearts of your children. In light of these imperatives, a couple of suggestions are in order. First, parents must do more than fill their children up with doctrine and good teaching. They must fill them up with love and affection to the point of overflowing as well. When children are loved affectionately, they have a surplus they can share with others. Kids who have a love deficiency don't make very good missionaries because they have no love to share. So love your kids deeply and consistently. This includes not only teaching and discipline, but also much, much more. The missional home is a home filled with love and joy. It is a place permeated with an atmosphere of mutual service and encouragement. Second, parents must make outbound mission a way of life for the whole family. Go find people in need. Invite others in your home and teach your children how to be hosts. Don't merely invite social peers. Invite the poor, the lonely, and the needy. Invite single moms into your home. Invite families on your street who do not share your way of life, political views, educational choices, and so on. Invite outsiders in and love them with the love of Christ. Make your home a place of mercy and hospitality and missional prayer. Make your home an outpost of the kingdom and a launching pad for gospel outreach. You might say, well, that's taking the focus off my kids. I might end up neglecting my kids if I try to do all that. The reality is that children thrive when they grow up in a home where the parents are constantly seeking to expand their range of service for the kingdom. They see what kingdom life looks like from the inside. They have their natural sense of selfishness subverted. If we do this right, our children will not see this as an alternative to spending time with them. Oh, mom and dad are doing hospitality instead of seeing me. Rather, they will see themselves as vital participants in a family ministry. This is something we as a family do to care for others and share our blessings. Make your family a home base of mercy, justice, righteousness, and blessing in the world. If we just give our children doctrine and morality without a gospel-driven love for the lost and poor, 
we are actually raising up a new generation of Pharisees. We must raise children who can reach out to the different and difficult, with the grace and mercy of Christ. We need to train our children to keep their spiritual antenna up so they can pick up distress signals being sent out all around them. In this way, they can learn to be agents of blessing and peace in the world, so that all God promised to Abraham and commanded through Jeremiah will come to pass. Our families have been blessed with the love and forgiveness of Christ. Now it is time to go bless others with the same.